Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Aaron Brake and Nathan Apodaca. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, doing great. Doing great. We're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, we're joined here by a special guest. We have uh, Janique Stewart joining us, who uh, also works with Life Training Institute. Unfortunately, we were planning on having uh, Megan Elman joining us, but uh, well, she wasn't able to make it for our, our broadcast here today. But we do have Janique with us. We thought it would be great, considering the topic, to bring on a, a woman or two and, and get their perspective from it. So Janique has been with Life Training Institute since 2012. Janique Stewart was born and raised in Europe, and after her family moved to the United States for her high school years, Janique competed for an Illinois state title in a national pageant and chose two issues that she felt most passionate about, abortion and the sexualization of teens. After winning her first title at the age of 15, Janique began speaking in schools and churches on topics including raising up a pro-life generation and sexual integrity, the new sex revolution. After graduating from Greenville Liberal Arts College, she entered the field of pharmaceuticals and quickly rose up the corporate ladder to the position of corporate sales training manager. Although she loved her job, she felt restless. She felt a passion to return to her first love, speaking out for those who can't speak for themselves. Janique left the pharmaceutical industry in 2005 and has never looked back. Janique joined First Care Family Resources, the leading crisis pregnancy centers in South Florida in 2005, as a sexual purity speaker and educator for their prevention department. In 2010, Janique became the center director for First Care's Boca Raton Pregnancy Care Center, leading a team of women to provide counseling and ultrasounds to women faced with unplanned pregnancies and financial hardship. Janique founded Love, Pro Love Protects in 2011, a ministry focused on biblical sexuality. She speaks to thousands of teens each year in order to help them connect sexual activity with abortion and to discover the importance of why abortion should always be an unthinkable option. Janique, it is great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. 
Well, thank you for having me. I'm also excited to be here to talk about such an important issue. Well, today uh, is actually the second part of a three-part series that we're doing on the hard cases. And so this particular topic is we're talking about rape and incest with compassion and truth. So the main topics we're going to be covering here in, in this uh, overall topic is the emotional response to rape, the intellectual response to rape, and the tactical response. Now, before we, we begin, we often group uh, incest along with rape when we talk about the hard cases, but really, um, incest has two main aspects to it. The number one, there can be the rape aspect if it's a case of, for example, a father having relations with his underage daughter, or it can be a consensual case, but in that, in that case, you're talking about the possibility of genetic degradation happening so that any children produced from an incestuous relationship can uh, result in deformities or disabilities in the fetus. So we're not necessarily going to be talking specifically about incest, but I just want to bring it up real quick to point out that in some cases of incest, it can deal with fetal deformity or disability, and so the uh, the arguments that we gave in our last uh, our last episode would apply to the case of incest in that respect. And then in cases of statutory rape, uh, incestuous relationships, the arguments for rape that we're going to give here would apply to those. So we're just going to be talking now about rape, but the arguments uh, for incestuous relationships would uh, pertain to, to that as well. So, um, Janique, since we have you here, why, why don't you briefly kind of talk us through how you would respond when, if you're talking to an abortion choice person or even maybe just someone on the fence who brings up the topic of rape and, and says, you know, uh, uh, rape is such a difficult situation that, you know, even if you think abortion is immoral or it should be, it should be illegal, it seems like rape is such a bad situation that we should allow it j just because of how bad it is. How, how would you respond to a person like that? Sure. Um, well, first, I'd actually kind of like to begin with maybe a story uh, to help people understand um, how important this is and why it is important to engage this issue. We also have to remember that the majority of people, even those who identify as pro-life, will many of them will say that this is the one exception that they have. And many times, we live in very much a politically correct society, so people feel that the sympathetic and the compassionate response is to basically say, well, I'm pro-life except in the case of rape or incest, as you pointed out. But recently, it was actually about a year ago, I was having dinner with my dad, and um, I was actually traveling on the road, and we stopped, and I was able to go to a Denny's to meet up with my dad. And while we were eating there, a young lady who was our server we just really connected with her, and she asked what it is that I did, and I told her about you know, how I speak, the Life Training Institute regarding bioethics, and she got really quiet, and it happened to be the end of her shift. And she came back and said, well, I have a couple questions. What about when someone is raped? And she starts getting very upset. And I said, okay, well, this is the end of your shift, correct? And she said, yes. And I said, well, do you mind if we take one of these back tables and just sit down? And I said, may I ask, why is it that you are so right now upset when we really haven't had that much conversation? She starts crying, and she said, well, you don't understand. Nobody understands unless they themselves have been raped or unless they know someone who has. And she continued to explain that it was her roommate who recently had been raped 
and she was actually scheduled two days later to actually have an abortion. And I said, well, do you mind if we talk about this issue? So the first thing I did is I kind of uh, used the acronym C-A-R-E. The first thing I did is I tried to first find common ground because I knew she was already angry and she felt I was lacking compassion. So the first thing I do is try and have common ground and compassion and say, listen, I'm sure we're both going to agree that rape, anytime anybody is raped, it is horrific, evil crime that is perpetrated against that young lady. And secondly, though, we also have to remember that another human being who is also an innocent victim has also been created. So now we have two people who are the victim of this horrible, evil crime. And so, of course, she kind of at that point began to calm down a little bit. I wasn't attacking her at all, and, um, or her friend, her roommate, and uh, it was just kind of helping them to see that, wait a minute, this is important that we talk about this with that compassion. The next thing I did is that, A, is I acknowledge the suffering, and yes, this is definitely psychologically and very emotionally complex issue at this point, but it doesn't mean that just because it's psychologically and even emotionally Complex. Just because I acknowledge the suffering, it doesn't mean that there isn't a morally right way to go about it. And then that brought me to the R, which is I was able to now respond logically. I think sometimes people really want to see if you're going to be caring and compassionate, if you're going to actually listen to, yes, they have suffering. And so now I'm able to respond with logic. And so one of the first things I asked her is, I said, listen, um, so tell me about why is it that, why does she want to have an abortion? Why does she feel that is the only option that she has? And she said, well, I don't know if she feels it's the only option, but she is afraid. And this is very interesting. She said she's afraid that her child will have the same personality and characteristics as the rapist, which I thought was very interesting that they, she was looking at it more so from the point that what if my child grows up to be like the rapist? And I said, well, hold on. In all fairness, I'm like, I understand how someone might think that way. I said, but let's be real. And like, even right now with your own parents, we are our own individual persons. So just because you have DNA from your mom and your dad does not make you them. Would you agree? And she said, yes. I said, but let's just say that you had a two-year-old. And this two-year-old reminded your friend of the rapist. Would it be okay to kill that two-year-old because they remind them more and more every day they seem to take on what you believe are the characteristics of the rapist? Would you be okay with her killing that two-year-old? Well, no, definitely not. And I said, okay, but why? She's like, well, at that point, Okay, she's like, and then she just said, well, I kind of see your point. I said, no, no, but why, why would that be wrong? And she said, well, of course, because, you know, it, it's a person. It's a whole person. It's a whole being. I said, well, wait a minute. Okay, very good. I'm glad that you said that. I said, but what makes it any different when they're inside the womb? That also, by your own words, you said it's a whole person. If I can show you later on and make my case that the unborn is just as much a whole person, a whole human being, would you not agree that it would be just as wrong then to take out that, unfortunately, to basically end their life because of that supposed fear? And she said, well, yes. 
And then, of course, that leads me to the E, which is now that we've addressed those things, now I can make my case by establishing the humanity of the unborn. And so then I was able to go through that the unborn is a whole, so living distinct, but it's a whole human being nonetheless. And then I also use philosophy to show that there is no morally distinct difference that we could say, hey, we can kill them in the womb, but not now. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not adequate to be able to discriminate in that manner. And after about 30 minutes, she said, do you mind if I call my roommate and have you speak with her? And so long story short, I did. And um, it's now been, like I said, almost a year. And I actually, when I was driving up to St. Louis uh, just about two months ago, from Florida because I relocated to the St. Louis area, I actually stopped in Clarksville, Tennessee, where they are, and got to meet the baby who they did choose life for, and I got to meet the roommate and basically have a reunion with this young lady that we met at Denny's, and it was just a conversation, but it was a conversation that did not get ugly. It was really about the humanity of the unborn and compassion for both the woman and the child, and they chose life. Well, that's that's really great. Thanks for sharing that, Janique. Once again, could you reiterate what the what the acronym CARE uh, stands for? Sure. That first one is appealing to common ground and compassion, mm-hmm. because a lot of times people think that pro-lifers that we are unsympathetic, that we are uncompassionate, and so I think it's really important that we establish common ground and that we are supposed to have compassion for both the woman and the child. Both of them need our compassion. It would be wrong for us to respond in any manner. We are talking about human beings, and it's very easy to speak to an issue and not speak to the individual at hand. And so I think it's really important that we are compassionate in our tone, but that we appeal to that common ground, and that, A, is acknowledging the suffering acknowledging there is no problem. We must acknowledge the suffering and the pain because it was any traumatic event. A lot of times people will only focus on certain situations, but they, especially when it comes to rape, oftentimes people think that pro-lifers, we don't really care about their suffering, that we only care about the baby. And so I think it's important that we acknowledge the suffering and the pain, but again, We cannot elevate feelings above the facts of truth. And in this case, it's dealing with the very facts of life. We cannot allow our feelings to dictate how we respond because what we're talking about is abortion is the intentional ending of a human life. So, therefore, we cannot allow our feelings to determine if we are going to eliminate a person over this. It's really important that we focus on the facts. The facts tell us the science of embryology reveals that this is a whole human being. And then that R is responding with logic, and that's where we begin to ask questions. Asking, I think it's really important that we respond with questions so we can first understand where they are. So logically then, as we're asking questions, and I, one of the questions I do like to ask is, well, how do you believe that a civil society should treat someone who reminds them of a horrible, painful event. Or I will in some ways almost trot out a toddler and say, well, wait a minute, what if you have a two-year-old who reminds their mother of rape or a horrific event? Would it be okay 
for them to end their life because they are they represent a painful memory. Um, and then, lastly, that E is establishing the primary issue, which is the humanity of the unborn using science, the science of embryology, and then philosophy. So everything always comes back full circle to that main point. It has to be establishing the humanity of the unborn. And so that's kind of what I do, especially when we're dealing with the race issue, is that C-A-R-E, we are to care about both the woman and the child. And the reason why I also think that's really important is Stephen Schwartz points out in his book, The Moral Question of Abortion, that whenever we're dealing with the issue of rape, incest, and, you know, even with the health success in the life of the mother, he says, you know, there's always two principal considerations that we should adhere to. First, full and equal concern and compassion for all persons involved. So that is that woman and the child. And I love that he points out equal concern for the mother and the child. And then second, he says, we need to adhere to the principle that, listen, we may never do wrong to one person in order to benefit another. So again, when we're looking at this issue, it is morally wrong to harm and to end the life of the unborn child to benefit that woman. So if we keep those two principles at bay and at hand specifically, then we're able to look at this the right way and it's also framing the debate correctly, but it's helping people to see, wait a minute, it's always wrong to harm A or to harm B so that A benefits from that harm. Yeah, and so the acronym then CARE actually illustrates the points that we're wanting to make here in our in our show. And that we're so we're gonna go ahead and break it down then. That first we want to talk about the emotional response to rape. And that's always what we want to lead with. And then we want to bring it back to the intellectual response. And so when we talk about the intellectual response to rape, the the, the fact is that we need to make people know that pro-life people understand the gravity of the situation. And this is something that that you uh, talked about as well, Janique, is that is that a lot of people, especially those who support abortion rights, don't understand that pro-life people do care about these women. And so we're not talking about faking compassion. You should never fake compassion, although if you don't really feel compassion for a woman who's been raped, then there's a deeper issue there. But it's just that we can't justify abortions in the case of rape. But we need to help people see that we do care about the woman who was pregnant because she was raped. Yeah, you know, just to caveat off of that, like we were talking about establishing common ground, that is going to be the key to answering this question. After all, many people who bring this question up, like you said, Janique, they may have had a friend, relative, family member, or um, loved one who has been a victim of rape and may have become pregnant as a result of the act. I've had a couple of friends who come to me with uh, stories like that as well. And so, like we said, it's important to stress the need to show the love and sympathy through our words and actions and do what is necessary to bring, to show that we want to bring justice and healing to the victim of the sexual assault. Back in May, actually, me, Clinton, and Aaron, uh, we mentioned this on the podcast before, we were doing some outreach with Justice for All, and Steve Wagner, who's the president there, he made a very compelling point when he says that many people who ask this question are not necessarily trying to find out if the unborn are human. Many people want to know if you're human first. And so showing sympathy, understanding, and a desire to see justice done are all going to be necessary during the conversation. Yeah, I think we all agree that one of the reasons cases of rape and incest are 
difficult to address is because the women in these situations have been victims of a brutal, violent crime. Rape is a heinous evil, and we naturally want to show care and compassion and empathy in helping these women in any way we can. So we need to, as individuals and as the church, to surround these women and offer our support and help provide for their needs in any way we can. And as uh, Janika said already, the pro-life movement is not just pro-child, but pro-woman as well. And this is one of the reasons that crisis pregnancy centers in this country outnumber abortion clinics two to one, providing support and shelter, prenatal and postnatal care, as well as adoption services for pregnant women uh, who find themselves in these difficult situations. Yeah, excellent. Oh, go ahead. Um, When I was the director of the pregnancy clinic in Boca Raton, Florida, that was really also important. A lot of people feel that they do not have the resources or that they don't have anyone to support them. They don't have anyone to talk to who is going to be that compassionate ear and and hear what it is that they're saying. But I also think it's important, and I think that people have to be very intentional with the timing of this, but we have to also, and I know this isn't the popular, but we also have to remind people, especially when I start to, that E is establishing the humanity of the unborn. Part of that, let's be honest, is also establishing what abortion actually does. Abortion intentionally, it ends the life, it annihilates, it eliminates that life. So we already have one act of violence, which is that rape. Now we are compounding that with another act of violence, which is abortion. And that's how come sometimes in this society we have people right now who honestly believe, granted, they're not the only abortion provider of Planned Parenthood, but they are the nation's largest abortion provider. But we have people who honestly fund them and think, oh, they just help women. And, and this is it's so important that we fund them. But let's be honest, people do not realize just how evil and how horrible abortion also is. So even in this type of a conversation, yes, that rape is horrible, it is evil, but even as Francis Beckwith has said, and even Stephen Schwartz in his book, again, on the moral question of abortion, also points out that rape, yes, is also horrible beyond words, but so is abortion, because it's intentionally killing a child in ways that cause terrible pain. And abortion for rape is wrong because it now is adding a second horror to the first one, which is now the murder of an innocent child on top of the rape that has occurred. So I do think it's important to also make sure that people do not forget that we're not just talking about the rape. Yes, that rape is evil, but my friends, abortion is also wrong and it also is evil, and there is no excuse for that. Yeah, so once you've talked about then rape from the emotional aspect, because obviously we want to spend some time talking to a person, well, the person that we're talking to who brings up the rape situation, we want to spend some time establishing that you do care about women who've been raped, but especially if you're talking to someone that you suspect has been raped in the past or who has flat out come out and told you? Because there have been at least a couple of women that I've talked to at college outreaches who have just flat out come out and told me that uh, that they have been raped. And so in those kinds of situations, you want to spend some time talking about it emotionally. But once you've established then that you do care about women who've been raped, then you can move on to the intellectual 
the intellectual response and talk about why, even though rape is such a horrible crime and no woman should ever have to go through this kind of situation, it doesn't justify killing the unborn human being. Now, of course, the right thing to do is rarely the easy thing, but it's usually not very difficult to determine what the right thing to do is. Even though uh, a woman who's been raped has uh, has trauma and there are some psychological and, and emotional complexities to it, the moral, the morality of it is actually pretty simple. Frank Beckwith, in fact, as Janique mentioned this earlier, Frank Beckwith in his book Defending Life and Stephen Schwartz in The Moral Question of Abortion talks about this, that we don't kill person A to benefit person B. Now, that's not a lack of compassion for person B. It's just an unwillingness to commit murder. So we, we can't justify killing or harming another human being in order to benefit someone else. In a civilized society, we punish the rapist, not the rapist's family, for his crime. So in previous episodes, and also as Janique demonstrated earlier, we use the tactic trot out the toddler even when it comes to cases of rape. And she mentioned earlier about the two-year-old. Uh, suppose that you had a two-year-old who was conceived through rape and perhaps even in some situations may remind the mother of that difficult situation and, and the rapist. Would we be justified then in killing the two-year-old? And the friend that she had a conversation with said, well, no. And the reason is because we're killing a human being. So if the unborn is a human being like the toddler or the two-year-old, then we're no more justified in killing the unborn because of the circumstances surrounding their conception than we are the toddler. And so when we trot out the toddler and use this tactic, we have to ask the question, what is the moral and responsible outlet for all of the emotions and hurt in these difficult situations? Is it abortion? Uh, well, again, that depends. It depends on what? It depends on how we answer the question, what is the unborn? If the unborn are human beings, then they are an innocent victim as well. And it is the rapist who has been the aggressor, not the unborn. So if people answer that question, if they say no, it's not okay to kill the toddler conceived through rape, then what that helps clarify is that it is not the evil circumstances surrounding conception that is the morally relevant factor in answering the question, can we kill this? Because if it was, then we could kill the toddler conceived through rape as well. Rather, it shows that it is still our human nature that is doing the moral work with regard to abortion even in the hard cases like rape. And I think that's correct. The reason is because how you are conceived has no bearing on who you are or your value, nor does it change the kind of thing you are, a human being. It's not the circumstances of your conception that is the issue, but rather the kind of thing that you are. You are still a human being. And if that's true, then the unborn are included as well as full-fledged members of the human community since they share with us that same human nature. That's an excellent point. One of the things that I always try and whenever I'm speaking, this always comes up at high school. People will always ask about this issue. And I always kind of like to, to give them this as an example. We'll say, listen, if abortion for a child that was conceived in loving intercourse, would you agree that that's murder? And many of them will admit that and say, well, okay, listen, if it's definitely murder, to kill a child that is conceived in loving intercourse, then it's still murder when the child is conceived in any other form of intercourse, as in rape or incest. Because it's not the manner of how they were conceived, whether it was voluntary or forced, it has no bearing at all on the dignity 
in the preciousness of the child conceived. So our value in our humanity is not a matter of how we were conceived, but the fact that there is a child that is conceived. So a lot of times people do think it's about the circumstances of the conception when the fact is, no, no, conception has taken place, which now means that woman is with child. We like to use the term, oh, she's pregnant or she's going to have a baby. If we go back to the terminology, she is with child, it tells us right there, wait a minute, that child, that human being is already present from the moment of conception. So we're dealing with a human being, and we don't just eliminate human beings because of hardship. You know, hardship does not justify homicide. Yeah, so that this is, I think, something that's missed often because so many people just assume that the unborn human being is not a child. And so they, they don't they just don't take into consideration that the, the unborn human being, the unborn embryo or fetus, is a second victim of the rape because they are at risk for abortion, being targeted for death uh, just because of how they were they were conceived. Now, we talked about trotting out the toddler, but there are some people who might make a little bit more of a sophisticated case for abortion in the case of rape. And these people argue from bodily rights. Now, we're, we're going to talk more about bodily rights in the future, possibly the, the near future, because I, I want to talk about so, some thinkers like Judith Jarvis Thompson and maybe even go over her essay in, in which we'll talk about you know her, her entire case for bodily rights and why it, it doesn't work. But in this case, someone might say, well, okay, it's not specifically the fact that they were conceived in rape. It's the fact that the woman didn't choose to become pregnant. And, and so the child is actually violating her right to bodily autonomy, and that would be their argument. So some people make this case that the child basically is violating her bodily autonomy by being there. And so if the pro-life argument, the pro-life syllogism that we talked about before is successful, then it, it shows the conclusion to be sound that abortion is wrong because it intentionally takes the life of an innocent human being. And so the circumstances of the conception uh, are irrelevant to arguing against that conclusion, but it's it's, it's also uh, not to you know downplay the right to bodily autonomy, but it's also kind of irrelevant when we talk about bodily rights because in no other in no other case do we allow someone to harm or kill another human being and justify it by arguing that they have a right to bodily autonomy, as has been said. Uh, my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. And so if the unborn human being is an innocent human being, then we can't justify killing or harming that human being uh, just because we have a right to bodily autonomy. So in fact, abortion in the case of rape may not even be the best thing for a woman who has been raped. Uh, In his abortion textbook, Abortion Practice, abortionist Warren Hearn makes the following admission. He says, quote, victims of sexual abuse and rape deserve special care. However, the abortion counselor should recognize that the emotional trauma experienced by the rape or incest victim cannot be treated adequately, if at all, in the abortion clinic setting. All rape and incest victims, as well as victims of physical abuse, should be referred for appropriate psychological counseling and support, end quote. Now, uh, I kind of like uh, Warren Hearn. I don't like the fact that he does abortions and kills human children, but I like Warren Hearn for the fact that he's generally pretty honest about what he is and what abortion does. Now, he has some some silly ideas. Like he, um, 
another place in his textbook, he said he actually says that unwantedness could be viewed as a complication of pregnancy, and the medical indication for that would be abortion. So uh, I think it's kind of silly to say that uh, to say that we could justify abortion just because the the unborn human being is unwanted and for no other reason. But I do like Dr. Hearn in that he is actually pretty honest about what abortion is and what what he does to the unborn human being. Additionally, Feminists for Life president Saren M. Foster recounts that while she was giving a lecture, a medical student who had been raped had told other students present that the abortion was worse than the rape. She also recounts another time that a woman conceived in rape met her birth mother. The mother told the daughter that she was the only good thing to come out of the rape. So, so we could talk about how abortion in the case of rape is is wrong through logic and intellectual arguments, but it also seems to be the case that abortion may not even be the best thing for the woman. It's certainly not going to take away, it's not going to undo the rape, and it's not going to take away the trauma of the rape. And so, as Dr. Hearn says in his textbook, she needs to be referred for proper counseling. The abortion clinic setting is not the appropriate case to help a woman who has been raped. You know, it should also be mentioned, when we interviewed Patty Smith from Silent No More a couple weeks ago, the abortion clinic setting, they're generally there just to provide the abortion and essentially get paid. This is Patty Smith's account of it. And so, in a sense, they really don't care about the woman at all. There have been cases of that happening. But just setting aside the even the intellectual arguments for the moment, as Frank Beckwith points out, even if abortion is permissible in the case of rape, this does not in any way justify the majority of abortions that do happen. And so an advocate of the pro-choice view must argue that all abortions are morally acceptable and not just highlight the emotionally hard and very rare cases where abortion may be the only way to accomplish a good thing or a good end. Uh, essentially, abortion in the hard cases doesn't justify or, excuse me, establish the pro-choice position at all. It establishes a very limited pro-choice position. A lot of people do think that they almost look at rape as though, I don't want to say that it's like a disease, but many times they will look at conception from rape as if the cure is, is having that abortion. But even the World Health Organization points out, um, and this is from them, it says, the very women for whom legal abortion is considered justified on psychiatric grounds are the ones who have the highest risk of post-abortion psychiatric disorders. So even in that context, many people do think, well, hey, if I just have an abortion, it's going to fix everything, and it doesn't. Um, all it does is really kind of compound the problems because, again, we have to remember that rape is violent, but so is that abortion. And it's not just violence against the unborn, but it's also violence against her own body as well, having that abortion. Um, so, of course, it's definitely not a cure the way most people are conditioned to think in our society. Um, I'd also like to point out in that same regard, you know, many people do think that it's going to help them emotionally. But even if you look at when a rape occurs, I think it's always fair to point out how many people are involved in this situation. We have the woman, we have the rapist, but we also have another innocent victim, which is the unborn child. And I always like to have people look at this. Okay, now let's be honest here. Imagine if this woman sees the rapist, he escapes, a couple of weeks later, she's at the grocery store and she recognizes the rapist. Would it be okay 
is because of all of her emotional pain and suffering that she's going through. Would it be okay that if she saw him a couple of weeks later at that grocery store, she waits in her car in the parking lot until he comes out, she followed him, and she kills him because of all that she's going through? Would that be justified for her to use vigilante justice? Nobody ever says yes. And in fact, even when we're dealing with court trials, and that rapist is now in court, what is the punishment that he receives? It isn't the death penalty. It isn't even life in prison. He is now sentenced, and he has to serve time behind bars. So it's very interesting that he still has his life, but yet we think that the cure isn't going to be killing him, but yet we think the cure to all of this is going to be ending the life of that innocent human being. But it's unfair to punish the innocent human being, that unborn child, for the sin and the crime of its father. So it isn't a cure. All it does is compound the problem. You know, just bouncing off what you just said, uh, Janique, Mike Adams, a criminologist, has he makes an interesting point on this when he points out that even in regards to the three people that are involved, you have the mother, you have the assailant, the rapist, and then you have the unborn child. And what ends up happening is people forget that actually the rapist has, under current constitutional law, has a constitutional right to life. There was a case in 2008, uh, Kennedy versus Louisiana, where a man named Patrick Kennedy he was sentenced to death for essentially raping and torturing his stepdaughter, his eight-year-old stepdaughter. And the Supreme Court ruled that he has a constitutional right to life if the victim did not die. So essentially what we have is the rapist has a constitutional right to life, the woman has a constitutional right to an abortion, and the child has nothing in that. That seems really backwards and very counterintuitive. Yes. And Excellent so, point. Yeah, I agree. Hmm. Just to kind of uh, change the direction of the conversation, just to talk about the tactical response to the rape argument, we brought up the CARE acronym earlier. Scott Klusendorf gives another really good way to respond to this. He points out that there are two types of people who will ask this question, inquirer and the crusader. And so he points out the inquirer is someone who is understanding the argument against abortion and is well on her way to becoming pro-life. But she may be struggling with how to think about a woman who may be a friend or relative who is pregnant as a result from rape. And so the way he points out to answer the question is something like this. So say, I completely agree that this is going to be a tough question. Believe me, I've struggled with thinking about this issue as well. I believe the victim of sexual assault is fully deserving of our sympathy, help, support, and justice. I think we would both agree with that. And there it is, establishing the common ground. But now we point back to what the main question is. However, the question regarding the issue of sexual assault and pregnancy is not, how was a child conceived, but rather, was one conceived? If one was conceived through a horrific crime like rape, the question we should be asking is, how should we, as a civil society, treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? Should we be allowed to kill them in order to try and ease our own pain? I think it should be obvious what the answer to that is. Now, of course, the question depends on, are the unborn human? And we've established that also. That's the E in the CARE acronym. Now, the other person 
there are the Inquirer and the Crusader. The Inquirer may still be struggling, but she should get the point here. Now, the Crusader is complete opposite. He does not care about the pro-life case, and he's just out trying to score debate points by making himself look good. He claims to show sympathy for the victim of an assault, but it's really a false sympathy. And the way one can typically respond is to just say, well, okay, let's suppose for the sake of discussion that I was to grant you that abortion is acceptable in the case of rape. Would you agree that all other abortions are immoral, and will you join us in working to stop all other abortions? Now, the answer is almost always no, to which we can reply, so your real position is not that abortion is acceptable in certain rare and very difficult circumstances. Your real position is that all or most abortions are acceptable. So why don't you defend that position instead of hiding behind the hard cases like rape? Yeah, no, it's it's best for the sake of persuasiveness not to necessarily assume that you're dealing with a crusader. Sometimes you can tell if someone is just being belligerent to trap you, but even then, sometimes it's best to err on the side of caution and assume that you're dealing with someone who is genuinely concerned about rape victims, lest you lose the person by falsely assuming something about that person. After all, as Stephanie Gray has noted, often the reason someone is focusing on one situation like a laser beam, such as the situation of rape, is because she has faced that same situation in her past, or if she knows someone, herself, a friend or a family member, who has had an abortion for that reason and, and isn't ready to accept your view of abortion being wrong because she would have to accept that the person she has in mind has killed her own child. I remember one particular outreach I was participating in at Fresno City College in Fresno, California, in which a woman who was pretty angry at me, at me approached me at the outreach. Now, as many abortion choice advocates tend to do in this conversation, she tried to concoct an extreme situation to see if I would agree that abortion is justifiable in that case, even though in reality it wouldn't justify abortion on demand, which is basically the situation that we have here in the United States. She asked what I would do if my 14-year-old daughter had been raped. Would I force her to continue the pregnancy? I told her yes, I would do everything I could to help my daughter through the pregnancy, but I would teach her the value of human life, even those conceived in rape, and that abortion is the wrong decision to make. Now, this woman got even angrier at me and left in a huff. I asked my mentor, Josh Brom, about the interaction, and he told me that she was just wanting me to be inconsistent in my answer. In that situation, I was dealing with a crusader, someone who wasn't really interested in my answer, but I treated her as if she was genuinely concerned, just because I, I wasn't really sure about uh, her intention behind that question. Can I, can I just uh, also bring something up? I have a, a sure. story about that, like that as well. It's kind of just the opposite. Uh, I was doing outreach at Palomar Community College down here in the San Diego area, and I had a uh, guy who came up to the table I was sitting at, and he started to quiz me openly, asking rapid-fire questions on the abortion issue. He was very, being very belligerent, very um, loud and um, outspoken. Well, as the conversation went on, I could see that there really was an emotional side to it. He actually confessed to me during the course of the conversation that his sister had been a victim of a sexual assault. And so he was trying to square the pro-life view with abortion in the case of rape. And I think a lot of people who have do know somebody who's been raped or have heard stories of rape. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure we all know somebody who has been sexually assaulted or sexually assaulted. And so I think it's really hard for some people, and this is completely understandable, I think it's really hard for some people to wrap their mind around the idea that maybe their relative committed an immoral act 
by having an abortion. And so I think that is why we should communicate it and interact on this issue in a loving and respectful manner. Yeah, and when you encounter a situation like that, sometimes they call it uh, hurling elephants, where someone just throws uh, argument after argument or question after question at you in, in an attempt to make their own position seem weightier. And in, in that kind of a situation, you're not going to have a chance to respond to everything that the person brings up. And so it's also kind of a, an unfair debate tactic, because you're not going to be able to respond to everything. And so in that kind of situation, it's best really to just kind of focus on one thing. And if they try to raise an off-topic question or, or argument or something. You just really want to stay focused on that one argument until uh, until they agree with you that their argument doesn't work, uh, and then you can move on to the next one. And so, yeah, that can be kind of a, kind of a, a shady debate tactic in and of itself. Janique, did you want to uh, add anything else real quick before we move on to the closing? Um, well, I think the only other thing that I think it is important that not only we've already talked about the importance of the tone of our conversation, but I also think it's important that we not retreat from engaging in this dialogue, especially when it comes to the race issue, because this is something that even comes up, let's face it, even during elections. Think about when you've seen commercials that are basically supporting one candidate, and when you look at the side that happens to be uh, for the pro-abortion side, you'll see them say, well, so-and-so, they oppose abortion even in the case of rape or incest. And they make it sound like, oh, they're just so mean because they're forcing this woman to go through with, with her pregnancy. And I think it's really important that we have the courage to step in and say, well, wait a minute, hold on now. Let's make sure that we're looking at this from the right perspective. We always want to bring it back to the vantage point that there are three people involved and that there are two innocent victims. And again, as we stated at the very beginning, we are to care equally about the woman and the child. We're dealing with human beings, and human beings are not dispensable because of situations or circumstances. The value of our human life does not rest upon circumstances, but upon the fact that we're human beings. And specifically when we're talking about the unborn, we always have to bring it back that it's a whole person. And so I think it's important that we continue to have these conversations and that we're not afraid to. I think that many people, when it comes to the issue of abortion in the case of rape, this is when they will literally throw in the towel because they may not either have the skill set or maybe they themselves are not fully convinced, even those who are pro-life, that it's morally wrong, even in the case of rape or incest, to have an abortion. So I really think that if we're going to have these conversations, part of defending the life and the humanity of the unborn and their value and worth is also defending it, even when it comes to cases of rape and incest. Very well stated. Now, we talked about the emotional response to rape and the intellectual response to rape, as well as the tactical response to rape. And Janique gave us a very helpful acronym, CARE, to think about our interactions regarding rape. So I'd like to thank you, the audience, for, for listening to this 
uh, this episode. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Nathan and Aaron, for joining me. And I'd also like to thank Janique for joining us for this uh, for this conversation. Her insights have been, uh, have been very helpful, and I, I'm sure anyone listening will get a lot out of it. So thank you, Janique, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, if you um, if you appreciate what we've been talking about here, we would ask that you share this around, uh, rate and review us on our Facebook page and on iTunes. Now we do have a, a couple of upcoming events. Uh, I myself am going to be debating a right to die with Matt Dillahunty, an atheist internet personality, on Friday, September eighth, at the Bible and Beer Consortium in Dallas, Texas, and that's going to be at either six or seven in the evening. And then uh, in the next day or two, I'm going to be, or well, you know, after my Dallas event, I'm going to be in Houston on a radio program called Sin Boldly, hosted by Evan McClanahan, and we're go I'm going to be having a discussion on abortion with a local abortion choice advocate. I don't have any details for that just yet, but I will mention that as soon as the details have been set. And now Aaron uh, had to take a phone call, but. On August 13th, he's going to be speaking via Skype to the Apologetics class Reason Why at Catalina Foothills Church in Arizona. And again, that's August 13th. He's going to be giving a presentation on the case for life, followed by a question and answer period. And thanks to Dan Grossenbach for inviting him. Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week, on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we are doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you would like to donate to this podcast specifically, you can also indicate that in the notes section. Donations are also tax deductible. Now next week we're going to be concluding our three-part series and we're going to talk about abortion in the case of life and health of the mother cases. So on behalf of Nathan and Aaron, I'd like to thank you again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.